I'm delighted to be with you today. And what we're going to look at is how you take a, a particularly a high poverty school and or a high poverty classroom and move it to uh, proficiency very well. I want to say a little bit about the background uh, of this. Um, it, this is a model that I've used for year, years and actually works. And one of the things that I'm going to say is Kim Ellis' name is also on here with me, and I have worked with Kim Ellis for years. She is the assistant superintendent for curriculum instruction in uh, a school district in Texas. And so she is very familiar with the school improvement process that we're going to talk about. Uh, but I want to look at basically an, a bigger model just for a moment here. Uh, and let me say a little bit about why I'm showing you this bigger model. Several states now, Texas included, have concluded that the school improvement models that they're using actually don't work with high poverty schools. And the other thing that's happened is that after Race to the Top, at the end of that project, after eight years, a research study was done on it and found that the $7 billion they spent on that project actually made no difference whatsoever for students. Well, I actually knew that that was going to happen as they entered into the project because it wasn't possible for it to happen. There was an issue with the model. So I want to show you a model that does work um, for what I did for six years for regional service centers was help them raise test scores. So let me show you a simpler, quicker model, whether it's your classroom, your building, whatever, but how you begin to shift the focus. And it always starts with the student, and your most important variable is actually time. The problem is that students from poverty come in two to three years behind other students. So you have to have a model that addresses time. And so in our model, the students are always in the center. The first level is what you need to know about the student, which is our classic framework for understanding poverty model. The second one is the interventions that the teachers would make in the classroom with students to change the trajectory, um, which is research-based strategies. But the third one is the one we're gonna talk about today. What you have to do in a larger frame, either in your classroom or your school, to begin to um, shift the reality. And then you're really providing the supports for the student to learn and the proof that the student has learned. And then the last step is at the leadership level where you're looking at systemic supports. We are gonna talk about that third level, the support system that has to be in place to make this happen. And the current models have not been very successful because they require a conceptual shift in thinking. So I want to tell you what some of the shifts are as we go through this. But the first conceptual shift is that we have to use simpler models that take less time and involve more people because time's the most important criteria you've got on the table, nonstop. And one of the things we know, we talk about time on task, but that's usually, that is usually um, discussed as the amount of minutes in the classroom that are taken for uh, instruction. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about time, and I'll show you some of the tools you have to use to figure it out. You have to prioritize your time. What has the greatest payoff for you? Let me give you an example. I was working in a, a school district and with a seventh grade teacher, and she spent one day a week on spelling. I said to her, how much of your time is that? She said, 20%. I said, are you getting a payoff for learning? She said, what do you mean? I said, are the kids learning more? She said, well, I said, are they spelling their, more of their words correctly? She said, no. I said, are they using those words in their writing? She said, no. I said, are they editing their work more correctly? She said, no. I said, are they using them in their reading? She said, no. I said, why are we doing it? There's no payoff. I'll give you a little story. About 10 years ago, I bought an uh, exercise video and uh, bought an exercise outfit, and I laid on the couch and watched that video twice, okay? Now, if my doctor says, have you been spending time with exercise, I can say yes. Did it make any difference for me? The answer is no. So what is the payoff for time, and how do you prioritize that time? The next thing you have to look at is you have to look at student work, and why is student work so important? 
It's what changes the teacher's expectations. We hear all this noise about teacher expectations. There's only one way to change it, and that's to look at what students produce because and analyze it. And the way you do that is you calibrate and standardize student work. And I'll give you some examples as we move through this. Its effect size is 1.62. Now, I don't know if you know John Hattie's work in visible learning, but what John Hattie did was a bunch of meta-analysis on over 1,200 studies, and he did an, an algorithm that calculated for this group of studies what had the highest payoff. If it's over 0.4, you means you've got one year growth for one year of instruction. If it's greater than 1.0, it means you got at least two years of growth for one year of instruction. So when you get 1.62, you get almost three years of growth in one year. And I know it's true because I've done it, okay? You have to standardize the work and standardize and calibrate it. And I'm gonna talk more about that. This thing of putting objectives and looking at objectives and no. I was in a sixth grade class. I'm not saying don't do it. I was in a sixth grade class of a low performing middle school. Teacher had written on the blackboard. Students will be able to identify characterization in literature. What were the kids doing for an assignment? They were coloring in a coloring book. You can have any standard on the blackboard you want or whiteboard, but if you don't have the appropriate student work and it's not calibrated and standardized, doesn't make any difference. Student ownership. Do the students own their work? Are they involved in their own learning? That has a test effect size of 1.44. Again, that's an intervention that's two to three years. And I'm going to show you examples of what that looks like. And part of that is having a future story. They don't have a future story. It doesn't make any difference. The next one that you have to do is growth models. What we're focused on right now is proficiencies. Can they do it or not? Yes or no? That doesn't get you growth. Growth is when you move the child towards expertise. It's a whole different set of thinking. And I have some examples for you of how you do that. And then you have to refocus teacher evaluation. A lot of time is spent on teacher evaluation, okay? Observing in the classroom. But there's pretty much a lot of evidence to indicate that it makes virtually no difference in student achievement. Why? Because it's not where the proof is. The proof is in the student work. So what you do is you get teachers to work together to analyze and produce better student work. And that has an effect size of 1.57. Again, two to three years of growth in one year. So. And the last thing, if you're particularly in a high poverty neighborhood, you have to develop the capacity of the parents to help the child get the post-secondary goal. One of the, we've taken 50,000 adults in poverty through a program we call Getting Ahead. And I can tell you that almost none of those adults have a future story. What do you want to do or be? That is what gives you, that's one of the things that helps you finish school. So these are major conceptual shifts. They're away from this heavy focus on teacher observation to teacher evaluation through student work, a heavy focus not on standards, but on student work, calibrated student work, and a heavy focus on how you prioritize time. So let me show you now, we are going to spend most of the time in this webinar with the first year, what you have to do the first year, okay? And there's three things you have to do the first year if you're going to structure. When I took my first principalship, and I helped lots of, of uh, schools raise test scores, but when I took my first principalship, I followed a guy who had been there 28 years, okay? He had actually retired 10 years before he left, okay? The central office, he didn't even leave, had put many difficult people in that building, okay? And their test scores were on the 40th percentile. Well, using what I'm going to show you, we be went from fourth place to first place in the district in math in two years, okay? So I wanna show you uh, things that you have to do. 
The first thing is you have to prioritize time. So three kinds of time, your school calendar time, your, 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 uh, yag is your year at a glance, what you're going to do. And there's an example of that in your packet and your weekly pacing guides. And then your focus standardized and calibrated student work. So let's do the first one. You've got to prioritize your school calendar. And this is a step I find many schools miss, many classrooms miss. They don't do it. You have to, because you only have so much time. So in your handout, I provided you a 2017-2018 academic calendar. And if you got it, if you printed it off, I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I'm going to ask you to do this, and let me explain why. I was working with a principal who had 135 initiatives, and he told me that he was going to do them all in one year. And I said, there's no way you're going to do 135 initiatives in one year. He said, yes, I am. I said, no, you can't. He said, I'm going to do it. I said, so let's get a calendar and you show me when you're going to do it. After we got to about five, he said, mm, it's not going to happen. I said, exactly. So here's what you have to do right now. September is a good month to get stuff done. October is a good month to get stuff done. November, draw a diagonal slash through that month because you're only going to get half that month. December, put an X on that one. Everybody's getting ready for the holidays. Besides, people are tired and grumpy. January, put a half a line through that. You only get half of that really for instruction because you're starting a new semester. There's all kinds of glitches. And then February, you get that month. March, you get that month. April, you only get half of that month, okay? Because you're getting ready for testing. And besides, people are mad then. They're really mad. They're not talking to each other very much, okay? May, cross that one off with an X, you're testing. June, Guess that one goodbye. People are getting out of there. Sometimes there's a little bit of training, but not much. July, a big X over that. August, half a line through it. Now, if you go back and look at this, whether you're in the classroom, whether you're the principal, no matter who you are, you basically get three months first semester, three months second semester to get your initiatives done, to get the bulk of your instruction done. One of the things the research is really clear about is that teachers who get high achievement, they know when school starts where they want their students at the end of the year. And they know exactly what they have time to teach and what they don't. And one of the reasons I'm saying this, there are continuous interruptions all the time, constantly. So you don't even get that much time. So if you are in a leadership position, either your leadership of your, if you're in a leadership position or you're in the classroom or principal, whatever, one of the things you have to do before school starts is you have to figure out what is the priority for my time. So at the classroom level, it means where am I going to get the bulk of my instruction in? And it means that for every nine weeks, you actually only got seven and a half weeks of instruction. So you have your pep rallies, your fire drills, your assemblies, everything else. Okay. For So what I say to principals is this. Put on this calendar with your school improvement team what your major initiatives are going to be for the year. And identify week by week what you're going to get done, and specifically which day of the week that's going to get done on. And make a schedule for it. Because if you don't, you will never meet your goals. Because time is the one commodity you cannot change no matter how much money you have. I hope I've stressed why time is the most important commodity you have. And it's really problematic if you have a high poverty school. It's very unpredictable. Okay. Then you lose part of September when you're teaching all the procedures, etc. But for, st for, for getting things done on a campus improvement plan, you can use, still use September. You lose instructional time. 
for what you're talking about. So what happens then is that once you have this established, then you identify which days and which weeks you are going to start calibrating and standardizing student work. I decided as a principal before the school year ever started which days we were going to have roving subs. Now, let me explain to you why you want to use roving subs. When I was a high school department chair, I did the same thing. You get roving subs. I got my principal to agree to get that for me. Okay. What you do is this. At the elementary, all your first grade teachers work for an hour and a half. Then they rove those subs to the second grade teachers, to the third grade teachers, to the fourth grade teachers, to the fifth grade teachers. You do that one um, once a six weeks. In the secondary, what you do is whoever teaches that course has a substitute for two periods, then you move them to the next course, the next course, the next course. Teachers like it because you have a, they're out of, out of the classroom all day, but it forces work to get done more quickly. And you make a list of what that is that's going to get done. I had other principals tell me, Ruby, you can't do that. You can't identify the days you're going to do that before the school year starts and get your subs. I said, why not? I said, look, we plan football games two years ahead, and we don't even know what the weather is going to be. So why can't we get this on the calendar? So we did. We did. And then every week, what the school secretary would do was send out to in a weekly memo to the staff, here's what your team is going to do this week. Here's what you're going to give to me, to the principal. What I did when I was a department chair, I said, here is what we're going to do in these meetings. Here's what we're going to have produced at the end of this meeting, and I want to see it. Okay. And we focused totally on student work and how much time we had to get that work out of those kids. So once you've made that, then you have to prioritize your time with your year at a glance and your weekly pacing guides. And the bottom line, you can, you can use, if you use Common Core, your state objectives, whatever. But you have to give your teachers, and the teachers have your department chair, the teacher leader for your team, you have to know for the whole year at a glance, what is it that I'm going to get done this year? Okay, Because all year long, you're sorting and prioritizing against time. That's your biggest problem. And then once you have those, you then standardize and calibrate the student work. Now, let me tell you again why this becomes so critical. They did a big study in California, and they, they were looking at low-performing schools, and they couldn't figure out why they were low-performing because they were all teaching the, the objectives. They all had these gorgeous lesson plans. I mean, they were all doing formative assessment. So they finally decided to ask to see the students' assignments. And what they found was that in, first, in kindergarten, 100% of the assignments were on grade level. They matched the objectives. By fifth grade, only 2% of the assignments were on grade level. When I took over the high school department, uh, English department, I, I about had a heart attack. One of the college-bound senior classes was spending a, six weeks on the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I said, you have got to be kidding me. I said, that's a ninth grade book. In six weeks, if they're college bound, they ought to be reading that book in, in a week. This is nuts. The bottom line is you have to look at what the students are doing. You have to standardize it and you have to calibrate it. Calibrate it means that it is at the level of difficulty of the standard. It's calibrated to the standard. So even though the standard I told you about earlier was students in the sixth grade will be able to identify characters, uh, characterization in literature, and they were coloring in a coloring book, that activity, that assignment does not go with, it's not calibrated to sixth grade difficulty. So once you calibrate it, what you will see examples of a calibrated work. And let me say something about this. You have to calibrate the amount of work, okay, and the kind of work. So, for example, in math, you also have to calibrate the level of specificity of the work they're going to be able to do. How many digits in? How, to how many 
to what extent can they do this particular operation, okay? One of the things that happens if you don't do that, then it doesn't happen. I was working with a, a high school that was low performing in writing. Only 50% 50, 50 of their uh, 11th graders were passing writing, okay, state writing test. And so I said, all right, tell me, what is the writing you do at ninth grade? Nobody did any. I said, what is the writing you do at 10th grade? Nobody did any. Nobody did any writing with the students until the first semester of 11th grade. I said, hey, you don't have your work standardized and calibrated. And they said, one said, well, I do it once a semester. I said, that is not enough. The research in reading and writing is it's the amount of writing you do and the amount of reading you do. It's just not enough. Okay? So one of the things you have to do is you have to calibrate and standardize the work expectations. And what you will see in that handout, they're both language arts examples, but it looks at how much work is expected per semester from kids. How many pieces of writing? How many of this? How many of that? How many of, what are you going to do to make that happen? It, it, it just blows my mind that we have, a, when I go to schools, I'll say to them, have you standardized your student work? And they'll look at me like I'm nuts. I said, they'll, every time, almost every time they say, well, individual teachers determine that. I said, are you having any discussion about whether it's calibrated to the standards? No, that has to happen. And the way you get it is that you get teachers to work together at a grade level or a course level to decide, is this appropriate? And I'll talk about more. But it has to be an agreement about standardization and calibration. The next thing that you have to do then is when you do, and the reason you have to do that is you have to do it for teacher expectations. That's how you raise teacher expectations. The proof of what a teacher expects a child to be able to do is in the work they give them. That's what you have to look at. So each six weeks, the grade level, the teachers, they're the professionals. They standardize and calibrate the work. Okay. And I'm going to give a, in that follow-up mini series, it'll be, I'll show you a thing at the end of the thing. I'm going to show how you do calibrate and standardize the work, how you get people to do that. Okay, it has to be a team effort. Okay, and you work them together. But the total focus is what the students are doing. And we get together, we calibrate each six weeks with the roving subs. What is the standardized work and calibrated work we are going to give that next six weeks? It's amazing to me. We have all these pacing guides about the objectives. We have nothing for the work that's going to be done. Okay, and then every week you put that in the weekly memo. Student work is the proof of the teacher's expectations. Now, the second thing you have to do, and I don't care if you're a team leader at a grade level, if you're a principal, if you're overseeing a program, you have to manage your staff. Because one of the characteristics of low-performing schools is they have a lot of beginning teachers. Okay, And you have to figure out how we're going to get the beginning teachers on board. So... You manage your staff. Why? So you can have collegial efficacy because the effect size is 1.52 and you change teachers' expectations that way. So let me explain and you help your new teachers figure out what to expect, okay? So Carl Gleckman has this grid I just love. And if you already know about it, great, but let me explain it to you. I'm doing an oversimplification of it, but I used it all the time in leadership. Okay. He said that in the education business, people operate off of an axis of commitment and cognition. Okay. And what happens is this. He said that people tend to fall in one of four quadrants. Okay. One, quadrant one, and if you look on this grid now in front of you, you have people who are high in, um, uh, commitment and high in cognition. Okay. So the professional in the upper right hand corner is high in cognition and high in commitment. So they have both hearts and brains. They're professionals. Okay. 
and get phenomenal results. He said another group of teachers is very high in cognition. They can think through anything, but they're not so high in commitment. Okay. And he called them analytical observers. Those are the those are the educators that they can, and they can be a principal or a teacher or whomever. You get a lot of parent complaints about them because they're not much heart there. Okay, it's a lot more about analytical to kind of thinking. They and so you get teacher uh, parent complaints. They're also ones who can criticize anything you're doing and tell you why it's bad. And you want to make sure at least for every committee you have, you have at least one analytical observer on it because you are going to hear about it one way or another. You might as well about hear about it before, okay? Um, but they get high, they can get higher achievement, but they don't build relationships with students. And in high poverty schools, it's problematic, okay? Then you have a group, the lower right-hand quadrant. They're very high in commitment, but they're not so high in cognition. And they give lots and lots of worksheets and lots and lots of busy work. And their heart is in the right place. They'll do anything for kids, but they can't prioritize what isn't and not important. I was working with a first year, first grade teacher. And she came to me at the end of first six weeks. And she said, well, we've only read one story so far. I said, excuse me? She said, oh, yes. She said, I did all the worksheets that went with every story. I said, no, 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 no. Okay. The bottom line on the thing is she had her heart was in the right place, but she wasn't able to sort what was and wasn't important to do with kids. And then the last group, he said, they're low in cognition. They're low in commitment. He called them dropouts. And he said, everybody knows who they are. Now, the reason I bring this up is this. Your two biggest teacher expectation issues are going to come out of two and three, okay? Because what happens for the analytical observer is they're impatient. They don't want to explain it multiple times. Furthermore, you should have gotten it. And it, there's not that ability to empathize and go that second or third mile with a child, okay? It's like, well, you didn't get it, so I think that's kind of your problem, okay? And there's always this piece, there's an edge in those classrooms, okay? The quadrant three, they're all hard, but they don't focus their time on what actually is going to get them the biggest payoff. So what I have here is when you have unfocused workers, they, you have to help them. You have to provide these kinds of supports. Identification of their priorities, what is important to spend time on and what isn't. Support for student diagnosis and intervention because they're not always very analytical, okay? They desperately need calibrated and standardized work so they know what is an appropriate assignment to give. And give them step sheets. Do this, 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 this. Because that helps them stay on focus with their time. For the analytical observers, you have to give them boundaries. Clear conversations about what can and cannot be done. Like, for example... When I was a principal, I had a teacher who was brilliant. He was an analytical observer. But he had been, I had heard from three or four different sources that he, he was a sixth grade teacher, that he would get mad at kids and throw them up against the wall. And uh, so I went in before school ever started. And I said, hey, there's a rumor going around about you, I heard. I've heard it two or three times. Now I said, I, I'm sure it's a rumor. Uh, but I hear you get mad and throw kids up against the wall. I said, no, no, I'm sure it's a rumor. But if you do it on my watch, I guarantee you, I'll do everything I can to get rid of you. We're not doing that here. That is a boundary. And it's like, this cannot be done. And we're not having it. Okay. Guidelines for parent conferences. Sometimes they're way out of line, way out of whack. And you have to say, here are the guidelines, or may I sit in on this particular parent conference, okay? And then professional development, how you scaffold to meet the needs of a student. Here are kinds of things you look at, because they're interested in being a good teacher and consider themselves a good teacher. But the, they tend to be very weak on how to do it, and they tend to be very heavy on what to do, okay? And then what you do is this. 
you make sure that to support your new teachers, you have every grade level has at least one professional in it. Okay, because I'm every grade level has to have a professional in it and make a grid of your teachers. Where are we? Where's my new teachers? What do I what mix do I have at this grade level or at the secondary at this course level? Question I get a lot is this. How do you know which quadrant the teacher is in? Okay, well, some are on all of them. Depends on the issue. And I, I worked with a teacher who went from professional to dropout in one semester because her son was killed in an accident. So it's, it's not clear cut and clean, but it's enough of a pattern making that you can make some decisions. Here are some questions you can ask, okay? Rand University, uh, uh, Rand Corporation, I'm sorry, did this study on professions, trying to figure out what was it that made, what were the questions you could ask in a profession that would actually predict how well that person would do in that profession? One of the most interesting ones was a surgical nurse. You know what the question was that identified a really good surgical nurse? Do you wash and iron your shoelaces? Three out of five surgical nurses said they did. Well, if you think about it, that, that's a job that requires really, really high uh, attention to detail and cleanliness. Well, the teacher they asked, the question they found was really, really a differentiator for teachers was this one. When a student questions something you teach, how do you feel about that? If the teacher said, well, I like it, it makes me think that they're thinking about what I'm teaching, da, 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 da. That was usually an indicator of an excellent teacher. If they said, well, it bothers me because it means they don't trust me and, and I'm not, they're not seeing me as an authority, then they were a good teacher, but not an excellent one. Okay. What is a new hobby or interest that you have? What you find is that people who tend to go in that professional corner tend to be always learning something new. Okay. Um, when you have free time, what do you do with it? Okay. When you've made a mistake, how do you fix it? Um, I want to know, do you have patience with students? And if they, I'll tell you, I interviewed in an interview, I asked one of the potential employee, uh, hirees, I said, tell me when a time in your life when you made a mistake and what you did about it, because I want to know, can you fix what doesn't work? Okay. And she said to me, I've never made a mistake. So I thought she objected to the word mistake. So I said, well, tell me about a time in your life when things didn't go quite the way you wanted them to go and what you did about it. She said, that has never happened to me. I thought, okay, I'm not hiring you, okay. Um, look, you either oblivious or you don't tell the truth. Either way, I can't have you. So, and how do you know when a student is in emotional distress? What are the signs you look for? How do you diagnose? So you begin to get a sense of it. So you, the rule is this. Every course or every grade level must have at least one professional in the mix. I've been in schools where they had a whole grade level of new teachers. That is a mistake. Okay, don't. One of the things is you have to have one professional in the mix. What do you do when you don't have it? You move your staff around till you get it. Second year of teaching, second year principalship, after I'd watched these teachers for a year, I moved them. I said, I'm going to move you. Tell me what grade levels you'd like to move to. It was an elementary school, but I'm going to move you. And I made sure every grade level had a professional in the mix because it's critical. Because when you go to calibrated and standardized work, why do you want that? You want the new teachers particularly and the other teachers to see what the professionals get from kids. You want that. That's how you're gonna change teacher expectation. Now, the third thing you have to do with your time is you have to grid students against accountability. And Fred, your question, does standards and practice training still exist? Sometimes, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly, as a lot of states right now are redoing they're taking Common Core, changing parts of it, renaming it, and adapting it so there's new training going on again, okay? And I, I think you have to have them, don't get me wrong. But if that's the only place you focus, you don't get gains. 
The third thing you have to do is grid the students against accountability. Now, many people don't know that accountability as we know it is actually civil rights legislation. It's to ensure equal opportunity in the educational place. So that's why they look at subgroups. And it comes off of an axis that um, Larry Lazat and Rod Edmonds did on effective schools. Effective schools have equity and excellence, okay? Equity means that the majority of students are above the norm by subgroup. Excellence means that uh, they're all learning. Uh, equity means they're learning equally. Equ excellence means they're all learning. Now, your accountability system of your state, and I don't care what state it's in, okay, is a numbers game. They're looking at kids and they're counting kids. So you have to do the same thing. And here's what you have to do. Many schools I know look at which standards they're high in and which standards they're low in. That's not how you get your numbers. Okay, you get your numbers by kids. And most people know that now, but you have to track it that way. So here's what we do. You use this grid at elementary for math and science by grade level. And every teacher does this for his or her students. Okay, and at secondary by course. Now, every state uses either five or four categories for accountability. Why? It's the quartile or quintile system because it's the only statistically correct way to measure growth. So they all use it. They give it different names, A, B, C, D, and F, okay? Um, uh, meets advanced, proficient, meets proficient, expectations, whatever. They all give their own terminology, but it's all based on quartiles or quintiles. Here's what you have to do. You have to know your time. Again, it's about time. You have to know who's where on this grid. So teachers, classroom teachers, by student name, they write down the names of the students and which, which group they fall into. First and second grade, you have teachers divide them into groups of three or four, uh, high, middle, low. They know by the end of the first six weeks where they are. We put them on a grid. We say, where do you think they are? And one of the things that we start doing then is we start looking at this. Who can we move? Who's moving? Who's pro where are we going to do? What are the interventions we're going to do? If you look at this particular classroom that's on your screen, you can see that two kids, two kids, okay, Jonas and Andrea are, are because they count in so many categories, are actually keeping the whole class from moving up to X, X, uh, moving on up. And then what we do is this: we have the um, principal then gather the number of students by grade level or or the department chair at the high school by course and look at them. And here's the rule. Now, do I have hard data for this? No. But I've been in state after state after state after state, and I'll tell you it's basically true. Okay. You have to have 80% of your students by subgroup in those top two quartiles or quintiles if you're going to be okay on your accountability. So this particular school has, has uh, 40 students. Has, I gotta get my glasses on. Has 60 students. They've got 80 Caucasians, okay? They got 80 Caucasian students at this grade level. 80% of 80 is 64. They need 64 Caucasians in those first two, two groups. They got 60. They need four more. In the African American group, they only have 40 in that top. No, they only have 30 or 30 or 40. I don't, I don't have my glasses on. 30 or 40 in those top two groups. So the problem is they've got to get 24 more with 40. And what you can see right away is there's not equity in this building because the difference in performance by subgroups. And what we do then is we start having a heavy conversation about who we're going to move. One principal know, I know does the following. She has these grids in her office by grade level. Now this is elementary. 
counselors do it by course level. And what she does is she's got a little picture of each kid and, a, and dots under there, different colored dots under them to figure out how many subgroups they fit in. And then once a semester, she works with her, um, once a semester, she works with her teachers to identify um, where they are going to move kids and how, okay? But we're gonna move on now. And what we do then is now the second year, you move to the next two pieces. And the second year, you have to start working together with your teams to really solidify that student work and the calibrated student work and talk about what you got from kids, okay? Just as an aside, one of the ways you calibrate student work at the high school is you make them, the teachers, all the teachers take an SAT or ACT practice test and they score their own test. And then what I say to them is this, this is what an 11th grader has to do. Now, what kind of work are we giving that will allow that student to be able to do this? Okay. And then you go backward. At the middle school, you look at what's happening in the uh, ninth, what, is, what does an eighth grader have to do? If you go back to the elementary, what does a sixth grader have to do? But you have to begin to calibrate what is the reality out there. And then the second year, you work heavy on student involvement in their own work. Uh, it's a test effect size of 1.44. It's huge, okay? So here's one of the tools that we use for that. We make them identify, like they take a, a formative test or they take a test, and we say to them, okay, write out, score your own test, and look at the questions you got right, and you know you could get them right again. In the middle box, questions you got, but you, you're not sure how you got it right, and you're not sure you could do it again. And then the last box, questions you have no idea how to do. And then what we make them do is begin to, we give a lot of tutoring, a lot of training. Now, tell us, before we get in this again, which one that you had in that second box can you now move to the first box? Which one did you have in the third box that you can now move to the first box? So we make them constantly assess and reassess, where am I in this mix? Another one is planning their grades. Here's three pages that a teacher used to help them plan their grades, okay? And what you're doing here in, this, in high school, her grades went up significantly simply because they were involved in the process. And you have to make them have a future story. I was working for an 18-year-old, with an 18-year-old, and I said to him, tell me what your life will be like when you're 25. He said, I'll be dead. And I said, how do you know that? He said, everybody like me is dead. I said, would there be any reason you wouldn't want to be dead? He said, my two-year-old brother. One of the things we find when we work with adults in poverty is they don't have a future story. The adult doesn't. Okay. So the fastest way to get it out of a student is a visual storyboard. And you have them go online. They put a piece of paper with nine squares in it. And they identify what their high school diploma is going to look like, what their college or trade or military service is going to look like, what they're going to do for work where they're going to live, what kind of a vehicle they're going to have, what kind of romantic relationships they'll have, what they will do for fun, what their friends will be like, where they'll travel. And one of the things you do is then they make a plan from it. And you have to make them identify from the time 25. What do you, if you want to be there at 25, what are you going to do when you're 24, 23, 23, 22? They identify the barriers and the obstacles that keep them from getting that, and then they make a plan to deal with those barriers and obstacles. For many of our students, they don't have a future story. And the reason it's so important is you can raise the expectations of what you get out of students. I used to say to my students, hey, you know, you want, you told me you want to do this and this and this. This assignment is going to help you get there. I need you to do it, but it's too hard, but it's going to help you get there. So let's do it. It is how you move them, okay? And then the other thing you've got to do is the third year is start moving them to expertise. And you've got to work with parents to develop capacity to deal with neighborhood effects in that, and get that post-secondary, okay? You can't really move that tra trajectory in high-poverty neighborhoods unless you get the parents' capacity to buffer the kid, okay? And we do it through a program called Getting Ahead, okay? But 
let me give you an example of what I mean by moving to expertise. This is a grid of how a student begins to understand what they have to do at secondary to become an expert historian, okay? Can you imagine how much more interesting history would be if you said to a student, my goal is to make you a historian. And here on the left-hand side are the five things that a historian does when they're an expert. They identify repeat patterns in history. They understand historical interpretations and bias. Okay? They identify and integrate the canons of history, military, music canons, art, social canons. Okay? They explain cause and effect. They look at how individual personalities and timing played a role in what happened. And they understand the accuracy of different sources and what that means. Well, then you show them how they have to move. I did this when I was a language arts teacher. It is what an expert communicator and writer does. And I'd make them tell me, tell me how you're moving along this continuum, because that's what this is about. It gives you so much more leverage. Like, for example, when I was uh, director of professional development in Houston, Texas, they, the principals came to me and said, Ruby, uh, Houston area, they said, we don't know whether it's better to be whole language or basal instruction. I said, that's, that's ridiculous. One of them is a philosophy. One of them is a methodology. I said, we should be having a conversation about whether or not the child's becoming a skilled reader. And they said, we don't know how to know. I said, well, the Center for the Study of Reading in Illinois identifies five characteristics of a skilled reader. They're fluent. They can... They are motivated, constructive, they make meaning. Motivated means they do read. Fluent means they can decode fast enough to not interfere with meaning. Strategic and process. They use a process when they read. Um, you will see grade one through five, a rubric for becoming a skilled reader. And what the teachers did is they highlighted where the child was in October for the first parent-teacher conference. Then they highlighted where the child was in a different color at the end of the year for the teacher-parent conference. And what that did is it moved the child to expertise. We made huge gains in reading in two years, huge, because teachers were focused on moving the kid to expertise. And you get so much more out of it because now it's not about proficiencies. It's about becoming an expert. And it understands that growth comes from moving to expertise. Growth does not come necessarily from meeting proficiencies. So we'll be doing, I'll be doing an, an more webinars and more series on those, the last, year two and three. But I wanted to focus on what you have to do the first year, particularly with time and student work, if you're going to move the needle, because that's what changes teacher expectations. And you get huge levels of growth in one year. As a board member, what type of growth data should I be asked to see from the district? Well, the way the states measure growth is how many students move from one quartile to another or one quintile to another. Okay. But what I ask for growth when I'm working with, I want to know, show me their work. In other words, can you show me their work? What I used to do as a principal is I'd every grade level, and what I did as a department chair, we were course level, we would bring in copies of student work. And I'd say, so we'd agree on a shared assignment. I'd say, I want to see their work. So I'd say to each teacher, I want you to bring in a middle, low, and high paper. I don't want to see everything you got. Let's just see what, okay. And they'd lay them out on the table. It doesn't take two minutes for the whole group to see that, hey, my highest paper is not as good as her lowest one. So how did she get that out of kids? And what happens, it changes the whole conversation. So if I were a board member, I'd ask to see student work across the continuum. When, I st when we started this, I had a lot of kindergartners teach kindergartner teachers tell me, kids can't write in kindergarten. I said, oh yeah, they can. They said, not our kids. So what we did is we got professionals to get the kids to write. And then we said, yeah, these are the writing examples. This is the work we get out of our kids. Anybody can do it. And I had more than one teacher say to me, 
hey, if I'd have known you wanted that, I'd have got it. I said, we want it. So it is the way that you, I, I would, that's, I've asked for growth samples. One of the things I really recommend you check out are getting ahead. Uh, what we do is we build the capacity of parents to change the trajectory of their children. Let me just say this. We quit doing parent education in the sixth grade, and that's when students need it the most. One of the biggest predictors of whether or not you finish high school or not is whether or not you go through puberty two years or more ahead of your peers, okay? Most educators don't know that, and we don't provide any. And so if the adult in the neighborhood cannot buffer that child from the impact of neighborhood effects, early pregnancy, criminal activity, violence, et cetera, et cetera, then the child, doesn't is really vulnerable to that whole thing and if they go through early puberty they're really vulnerable and so it's called getting ahead in a getting by world and it's on our website and aha process type that in can you repeat the statistic with puberty and early poverty yes it's in it is, it came out of the developmental research it's never bled over into the educational research but it's in a book called Achievement for All that I wrote for the middle-level educators. And in that book, Achievement for All, it's cited, the citation, but it was a developmental study. And they found that you go through puberty earlier. Like if you talk to schools now, they got kids going through puberty in the, at nine years old, fourth grade, some at third grade. You go through puberty earlier. If there's no father in the household, they don't know why. They think it's because of stressors. You go through puberty earlier. If there's violence in the household, they think because of stressors earlier if you're in poverty, okay, and you go through puberty earlier, sometimes for genetic reasons, for example, some African-Americans go through puberty earlier genetically, okay, because the diet in poverty is so high in carbohydrates and fats and not a lot of protein and because, okay, there's many more stressors in poverty, okay, that changes uh, uh, puberty as well. And what they found in the study was that Girls who went through puberty two years ahead were more likely to get pregnant, were more likely to be sexually abused, were more likely to be involved in cutting, okay? Boys who went through earlier were more likely to be involved in criminal activity, gang activity, violence, etc. And they found that both girls and boys failed at least one and often two courses their freshman year of high school. And you know and I know that if a kid fails two fresh courses their freshman year of high school, it's very difficult to finish. Thank you all for attending. I, I, I just have to thank you every day for all you do. It's going to take all of us every day a long time to move this needle.